I'm excited after uh, almost three and a half months out of this book, uh, preaching through Psalms. I'm glad to be back in Hebrews 7. Uh, we're back into our, uh, our series called Jesus is Better, because uh, that is the theme of the book of Hebrews. And every, every week that I've been doing Hebrews, I get into my study, I feel like I am drinking out of a fire hose, um, and then I come here and I feel like I turn the fire hose on you guys, and um, it's been difficult, but it's been good in many ways, I, I believe, too. And I, I'm already feeling like I want to preach this book again, um, so that's, uh, that's a good thing. Uh, so Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 7. I want to give a little introduction quick. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 6 to 10, the writer of Hebrews, we're not sure exactly who that is, he quotes from Psalm 110. Right, Psalm 110 is quoted 12 times throughout the book of Hebrews. And it's talking about the high priesthood of Jesus of the order of Melchizedek. And then we take a break. We know that the writer of Hebrews was a preacher because he starts talking about one thing, he stops, he rabbit trails, and then he's now... Uh, going back to what he was saying, right? We take a break. There are some warning passages in Hebrews chapter 6, and then there's an encouragement at the end of uh, chapter 6 directly to the people. And then at the end of Hebrews chapter 6, it says this, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and it thinks metaphorically that is what the high priest going into the Holy of Holies in the temple in the Old Testament was picturing. Ultimately, Jesus did something greater, and that is goes to the true holy place, the right hand of God. And he says, our high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, sits down. All right? So Hebrews 7 is beginning again what was being spoken about in chapter 5. Right? So he was talking, he took a break, and now he's like, let me keep talking about that some more. Right. This week we're going to look at the first 10 verses of Hebrews 7. Okay, And we're going to try and make sense of Melchizedek. That's what I'm calling it, making sense of Melchizedek. And next week we're going to like really fly through some of the implications of Jesus' connection to Melchizedek. Right? That's the rest of chapter 7. And then talking about the new covenant, all the big words, but they're good. We understand them. So far, the argument through the book of Hebrews, let me just catch you up really quickly. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Joshua. And now, Jesus is better than Aaron and the rest of the priests. If your name's Aaron, that's okay. Jesus is better than you too. Right? Right? To summarize, to summarize our text this morning, Jesus Christ is the perfect priestly representative between people and God, 
because his priesthood is of a different order and type to the Aaronic or Levitical Old Covenant priesthood. Right? Jesus is our perfect priestly representative between people and God. Let's read the text together. Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of God. Who's confused? None of you. Cool, I'll sit down. Um, They're big words. These are foreign concepts to many of us, but this is not ultimately actually very complicated, and we can take heart in, in that. Uh, I want to make uh, a little bit of a discussion specifically about Genesis 14, right? Let's try and make sense of uh, Melchizedek, and then we'll get into the text itself in Hebrews 7, and I think that'll come together nicely. Melchizedek shows up, Two times in the Old Testament, just twice. Once in Genesis 14, the whole chapter um, I'm gonna we're gonna look at a little bit, and then in David's prophecy about the Messiah of Israel in Psalm 110, which we looked at uh, last week. Melchizedek is mentioned in just four verses of Genesis 14, right? Just four verses. But he so obviously stands out in that passage and in the book of Genesis as a whole that David, hundreds of years later, comes to understand that Melchizedek is pointing forward to the promised one, to the one who would save God's people, the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, who we know as Jesus Christ. And here in the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek is mentioned seven times, right? probably to, to counteract some kind of false teaching about Jesus. 
I want to I want to dive back to to Genesis 14 because um, it's perhaps not a story that you know very uh, well, and that story is referenced here in Hebrews 7. So there's a sense in which a New Testament story references an Old Testament uh, story. It's not going to repeat all the details. It's expecting you to go back and read or know it already. These people, the Hebrews, would have known about this story. They definitely would have known about Melchizedek. All right? So the story would have come easily uh, to, to, the, to the Hebrews. But for us, we need to know what's going on. Hebrews 14 shows up right after God has promised Abraham that he's going to make him the father of a great nation, which we know is Israel. And that through him, the whole world would be blessed through his offspring. Immediately before that, though, in Genesis 11, we've just had the Tower of Babel, right? Where the kings of earth, and specifically one king, the king, king of Shinar, he tries to build a, a city tower up to the heavens. Right? It's a picture of man-centered religion. And that's just happened in Genesis 11. Then, in Genesis 14, we have a battle. I've repeatedly wondered to myself, because I read Genesis 12, 15, 17 all the time uh, for sermons as I'm thinking about Abraham, and those are the main sort of chapters about Abraham. I've wondered what's going on. Why does this battle get its own chapter in Genesis 14. It seems so out of place. There's the promises of Messiah and everything, and the land, and all these good things, and then there's a battle right in the middle of the narrative. But not anymore. I think I'm starting to see it. The story goes like this. In ancient times... Cities and towns would have kings. And every now and then, one king would be particularly good at conquering. All right? They're the United States of America of kings, right? And they would offer a deal. They would offer a treaty to other kings. They would say something like this. If you serve me, I'll let you keep your title of king. I'll let you keep your land. I'll let you keep your possessions. I'll let you keep your people. You won't die. However, you will fight for me and my army if I call on you. And if you get into trouble, I'll help you out too. That was a treaty. The great king, the great king, would be called the suzerain, right? Not a word we, we use all the time. S-U-Z-E-R-A-N, like Susie Rain, suzerain. Think just simply big king, great king. The great king would be the suzerain. The lesser kings would be called vassal kings, V-A-S-S-A-L, vassal. So you'd have a suzerain, and then you'd have maybe numerous vassal kings. Big king, little king. And to hold this whole agreement together, the vassal kings would be required 
to give each year 10% of their profits and their harvest and their spoils of battle, they'd be required to give 10% to the bigger king every year. And that's how the deal would work. So it is a, a good idea if you're king and you're amassing a big army to try and have lots of vassal kings serving you. It would make you rich and make you powerful. And then you could conquer more territory. And so in Genesis 14, that is what's going on. And if you read Genesis 14, you'll see all of this play out. In Genesis 14, there's a suzerain king named Chedorlaomer of Elam. He's part of an army of four kings. All from the east, including the new king of Shinar, the guys who built the Tower of Babel. You've just read that in Genesis 11. And so what Moses, who's writing Genesis, is letting us know, these guys, if this was a Western, would have black cowboy hats on when they ride into town. These are not the good guys. The king of Sodom, who in a few chapters shows he's also not a good guy, he decides he's done paying tithes to Chedorlaomer of Elam. He says, I don't want this agreement anymore. And after 12 years of paying an annual tithe, he says, no more. I'm not paying the 13th tithe. That means the king of Sodom has rebelled against the greater king. And so, the king of Sodom decides to gather an army of five kings to fight against the former suzerain, or the current suzerain, Chedorlaomer of Elam. They fight. They're fighting for the throne. All these little kings are fighting for the great throne in that area of Canaan. The king of Sodom, however, with his five kings, loses the battle. Not only does he lose, Chedorlaomer carries off Lot, who's Abraham's nephew. That's where Abraham comes into the story. Word of this gets back to Abraham. He gathers an army of 318 men, right? So it's a small little, like, raiding party. They attack Chedorlaomer, defeat him, take the spoils of war, and they get Lot, and they start heading back to safety. On the way home, the king of Sodom goes out to meet Abraham. Abraham's just won the battle that the king of Sodom couldn't win. And that is where Melchizedek shows up. That is the context where Melchizedek comes into the biblical story. I want to read these four verses in Genesis 14, verses 17 to 20. They go like this. After his defeat, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abraham in the valley of Shaver, that is the king's valley, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. 
Melchizedek shows up. He brings bread and wine, which is just a, simply a staple food of the time. I don't think it's a precursor to the Lord's Supper. He's priest of God's Most High, which is the same God worshipped by Abraham. He's king of Salem. He's a priest king. He pronounces a priestly blessing on Abraham, saying that God had given Abraham this victory. And then Abraham gives him a tithe. Abraham gives him a tenth part of the spoils of war to Melchizedek. Melchizedek leaves. Never seen again. That's it. And this might make you scratch your head. After what I've just told you, shouldn't tithes be paid to the victor in war? Shouldn't tithes be paid to the king that gets the victory? Isn't that the whole point? Abraham's just defeated the biggest king in the area, and now here, he's paying tithes to Melchizedek. We'll get to that. Very interestingly, in uh, Genesis 14, that Abraham, despite having rescued people and taking a significant amount of livestock and spoils of war, he gives the tenth part to Melchizedek, and then he gives everything else to the king of Sodom. And he says, I do not want to be enriched by you. He says to him, I don't even want a sandal strap from the king of Sodom. Which is fascinating because a few chapters later, that whole uh, burning story happens with Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? That, that, that's what goes, that's coming. And so it's interesting that the king, the king of Sodom doesn't get to, to say, hey, I gave you lots of stuff. Save me. Abraham doesn't take anything. More importantly, and this is where it really clicked for me, more importantly, why doesn't Abraham take the title of suzerain? Why doesn't he take the title of big king for himself? Abraham had the opportunity to become very rich and very powerful. This is an enormous territory. If Abraham won the battle, why is he paying tithes to a king who didn't even fight? The answer to that is because Melchizedek, a priest of God Most High, represented God as a priest. And God was to be the king of the Hebrews living in Canaan. God was supposed to be king. Abraham was never supposed to be king. God was supposed to be king. And when we understand that, we see why Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Abraham was never meant to be the king of Canaan. God was meant to be the king of Canaan. And that explains the book of Judges. The people of Israel said, we're not happy with God being king. Give us Saul. God is supposed to be king of Canaan. Abraham understood that. Abraham would not take that title for himself. And so if Melchizedek is pointing forward to the true king of Israel, Jesus Christ, then maybe you start to see some implications of all of this working together. 
And so with all of that backstory in mind, making sense of Melchizedek has led to some very uh, large range of speculations and opinions throughout Judaism and early Christianity. I read a, I read a six-page uh, six paper on all these views about who Melchizedek uh, was and some truly mind-boggling stuff, just, some, just some, uh, a few of them. Firstly, we have a, a fragment of a scroll from Cave 11 of the Qumran Caves, right? So that's real. It's probably in Oxford or somewhere, somewhere, which speaks of Melchizedek returning as a great priestly deliverer of Israel to rule with the archangel Michael. That's what the Qumran community believed, right? And it's very possible that the original group reading this letter to the Hebrews would have heard about this teaching from the, from the Essenes or the Dead Sea sect. There was a thought that Abraham, Melchizedek would like come back and be the great priestly deliverer of Israel. Another one, the Maccabean leader Simon was said to be a king priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he was waiting for a prophet to begin a new golden age for Israel. The early church heretic Pelagius and the Pelagians, they pointed to Melchizedek as an example of a perfect sinless man who walked the earth not needing grace. One of my heroes, Augustine, was writing against him and against that view. Perhaps more, popular, more popularly, though, Many have viewed Melchizedek as a pre-incarnate Christ, a Christophany, that Jesus arrives and gives bread and wine to Abraham in the Old Testament and some sort of precursor to the Lord's Supper, that Melchizedek is Jesus right there in the Old Testament. And some view Melchizedek and Jesus as exactly the same person. I appreciated John Calvin's commentary on Hebrews 7. He called that view simply ridiculous. It's like he doesn't even refute it. He's like, this is simply ridiculous, and moves on. Um, but thankfully, the writer of Hebrews pulls out some very crucial details in the first three verses of Hebrews 7. Firstly, his name means king of righteousness. He's priest of God most high. He's king of Salem. Hebrew doesn't have vowels, so they've only got consonants. Salem, S-L-M. Same consonants as Shalom, which means peace. King of peace, that's why he says that. And it's entirely likely, given the area that we've got, that Melchizedek is king of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That's interesting. He has no genealogy in a book where everybody has got a genealogy and connected to someone or someone else. He shows up and he leaves. And to understand why perhaps this is being told to the Hebrew Christians in Hebrews 7 here, we need to understand their temptation. The temptation of the Hebrew people, these predominantly Jewish Christians, was a temptation to go back to Old Covenant Judaism, 
at the end of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, we find out that they are being persecuted for faith in Christ. Perhaps they're not allowed to own businesses. Perhaps their families are shunning them. And so the temptation is, well, if we just go back to Old Covenant Judaism with sacrifices and priests and all those kind of things, then maybe we'll be able to open the bakery again. You know, like uh, maybe we'll, family gatherings will be less uh, testy. You know, that, 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 that's what's going on here. And maybe someone won't kill us. We're not sure of the level of that persecution, but it could be really bad. So these people are then being influenced by teachings that come out of the Qumran community, that in the last days there will be a prophet to Israel, a prophet, a priestly messiah, a kingly messiah, three different people, and all of this ruled over by the archangel Michael. And that is why the writer to the Hebrews is saying, no, he's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the priest. Jesus is better. He's prophet, priest, and king, and he's better than the angels because he made them. You don't need anyone else. He is saying to them, no, don't go back. He's saying to us, he's speaking to us today, don't go back. Don't reject Jesus. There's no one better to reconcile you to God and to be your Savior. And that's where Melchizedek comes in. We're simply told that Melchizedek's priesthood resembles that of Christ. And I think that word, order of Melchizedek, resembles that of the Son of God, just deals with that whole objection that potentially Melchizedek and Christ are the same person. If Melchizedek and Christ are the same person, there's no reason to say it resembles that of, of the type of, but they're the same person. It doesn't make any sense. Christ is greater still than Melchizedek, and we'll see that. I want to run through very quickly then the argument of uh, verses 4 to 10. The writer is simply sharing about how great Melchizedek is. Abraham gave homage to Melchizedek. Abraham paid a tithe to to Melchizedek as king. Melchizedek is a big deal. And then we start talking about the Levites. The Levites were the priestly tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel. They looked after worship. They looked after the temple and the tabernacle. They looked after uh, sacrifices. That was their job. That whole tribe existed for the worship of God. And within the Levites were the sons of Aaron, who were the the priests, including the the high priest. And in Numbers 3.10... It says this, you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. If any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The priesthood was a very big deal in Old Covenant Israel. And then, to help this argument along, 
we know that the Levites were forbidden from owning land. Right? That's in uh, Deuteronomy 10, verse 8, Deuteronomy 12, 12. The Levites relied on the tithes of the people. So everyone gave tithes, and that gave the Levites the ability to, to live. They were forbidden from owning property, and so they were forced to rely on others. That makes them, and here's the clincher, that makes the Levites recipients of tithes. They were ultimately all descendants of Abraham. They were part of the descendants of Abraham who received tithes from the people. Verse 6 to 10 contains one simple argument. In verse 7 it says this, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. The greater blesses the lesser. That's the argument. Melchizedek, therefore, was superior to Abraham, who was the greatest of all the Jewish patriarchs. You ask a Jew who's the greatest ever Jew, some might say Moses, but at the end of the day, Abraham wins out. And the Levites, the greatest of whom was Aaron, the high priest, who received tithes from the people, actually, in verse 10, it says, in some sense, paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham because they're Abraham's descendants. Do we understand that? The people that received tithes actually paid tithes to Melchizedek. He's that great. Abraham is greater than Aaron and the Levites. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. It's the Jewish equivalent of saying, who's the greatest old black of all time? Richie McCall, Colin Meads. And you come up with the answer and say, let me tell you about someone greater than that. That's what they're doing. You're tempted to go back to a temporary priesthood and sacrificial system with bulls and goats and animals and a brick building. You're tempted to go back to that. Christ is greater than all. That is the argument. I want to close then with this. I want to tie these things together. You might be sitting here going, so what? Cool, Genesis 14, Melchizedek, great. So what? What does that mean for me? We need to put these things together. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. A type is something that points to something that's coming in the future that is greater. Melchizedek is a type of Christ, someone who comes, who looks like him. Types look like the antitype. They look like the antitype, but the antitype is greater. And there's never anything greater that comes after that. Writing in the 11th century, a scholar called Hervea said this, If Melchizedek, who was a sign and shadow, is preferred to Abraham and the Levitical priest, 
how much more Christ, who is the truth and substance. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. Jesus Christ is the true and greater king of righteousness. Psalm 97.2 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Melchizedek was the king of Jerusalem, which means peace. Christ is said to be the king, who's also the, the prince of Peace. He is the one who will rule over everything with a peaceful kingdom. That's what it says in Isaiah 9. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's not just a verse you read at Christmas. It's true reality of who Christ is. Jesus is the one who through his death and resurrection speaks a message of peace to his people. Psalm 85, 8, he will speak peace to his people, it says in the Old Testament scriptures. There was a prophecy in Jeremiah 23, verse 5, in the midst of the worst suffering, and this is important to us, in the midst of the worst suffering and the worst lawlessness and the most unrighteousness and injustice everywhere around. There was a prophecy from Jeremiah to the people of Israel about a righteous branch who would come. Listen to these words. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, where I will raise up from David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. What this is saying to us is that Jesus is the just king who rules over his people, who promises an everlasting kingdom where there will be no more injustice and unrighteousness. Isn't that what you want? No more sin? No more shame? No more pain? That's what the true king of righteousness brings. That's what he does. That's what he promises. Based on his righteous life, his death in our place, and his resurrection from the dead, Jesus is able to forgive us to forever reconcile us to God, those who trust in His name. And to justify, to declare righteous those who trust in His perfect sacrifice. Wash us white as snow. He's able to do this because He is king and priest. And He lives forever. Not just for one moment. It's not just like, oh, He forgives me right now, but what about in an hour or tomorrow when I sin again. No, forever. He gives grace and peace to his people constantly. Melchizedek gave a benediction, really, to Abraham, which came from Noah, by the way, but never mind that. He 
He spoke a word of peace. He said, you are in a state of grace. God is blessing you right now. The reason why our times of worship finish with a benediction is because we're saying that because of the finished work of Christ, everyone that trusts in Christ who leaves here is under grace. That you're forgiven, that you're reconciled. That is what he's able to do because he is our priest. Jesus' victory came not with a sword. Abraham's victory came with a sword. Jesus' victory came through his righteous life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave. He defeated with love, not the sword. Now we've got to ask ourselves, if this is our king's victory, what do we give the king? What do we give the king? Do we give him a tithe? Do we give him 10%? No. Based on the nature of his victory, Paul says in Romans 12:2, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's where that comes from. You give the king who won everything, you give him everything you have. And he lets you live. In fact, he gives you abundant life. We come now to, to the supper where we see a picture of the king giving everything he has to reconcile us to God. Let's hear these words from Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. No amount of singing will be able to get all the joy out of my heart from reading that. Let's pray.